Matthew, uh, we're going to be in chapter 27. We're going to pick up in chapter 26. We've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. We're in the home stretch. And um, today we come to what we call the crucifixion as Jesus faces the cross. And as we, we get into this, I want you to just indulge me for a moment. But, um, you know, I have on your outline, it's called Christianity 101. And uh, it's a very familiar verse that, that we're all, if you've been here, it's read at every Christmas service and, and probably the whole world, but it comes from Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus would be born, and it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and we always underline Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He will be born as a baby, he will be a son, but he'll be more than a man. He'll be the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Now because of that, Christianity 101a, you want to write this down, all Christians believe that Jesus is God, and everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. And that is the dividing line between everything that is Christian and everything that is not Christian. So uh, Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, uh, you know, we, we have a, a lot of different things, but we're all united on one thing, and that is that Jesus is God. God came to the earth as a man. God came to the earth to pay the price for our sins. God said, I can't bear for you to pay that price, so I'm going to come and I'm going to pay that price for you. So all Christians believe that Jesus is God. Everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. So Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, all believe that Jesus is not God. And that's the dividing line between that which is Christian and that which is not. And we talk about that. Now, uh, not only that, but not only do we hold that, that, that Jesus is God, but there on your outline, all, all Christians believe that Jesus is the only way. And everyone else believes that there is another way. There's another way. Jesus, as, as a Christian, we believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only way to eternal life, the only way to peace with God, the only way to a relationship with God, all comes through Jesus. And the reason that we do this is because that's what the Bible teaches. So notice this verse on your outline. It says, there is salvation in, and I've underlined, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that which has been given among men by which we must be saved. And uh, so, so there are some who would say, well, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus is my way, but there's an, you know, so you can get there another way by being good or following another religion, being sincere, whatever. That's not Christianity. That's called universalism. It's an entirely different belief system. So Christians believe that Jesus is the only way, which is why I asked you to turn to Matthew 26, verse 39. And the reason it's so important is because in our story, the night before, the night when Jesus is betrayed, which would be the, the night be, before what we're going to talk about today, as uh, Jesus is about to be arrested, Jesus goes and he prays. And in verse 39, it says, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And, and uh, Jesus prays this three times and it doesn't get an answer. And the reason that's so important is that Jesus goes to the cross and he endures a horrible death, which we'll talk about today, because he believed that if he did not endure all of that on our behalf, then we could not be saved. We could not have a relationship with God. He believed it was the only way for man to be saved. And so that's why he went to the cross. And then as he goes to the cross, we get this 
incredible illustration if you flip over to chapter 27 and go to verse 26. As Jesus is about to go to the cross, we were given this great illustration we looked at last time. You have Pilate, who is the Roman governor. He's going to turn Jesus over to be crucified. But in turning over, he says, Pilate says, do you want me to release Jesus or this guy called Barabbas? And uh, you'll recall from last time, uh, Barabbas is very significant. If his name was Bob or George or Bill or whatever, it it wouldn't mean anything, but his name is Barabbas. And there on your outline from last time, Barabbas is a compound name, a compound word in the original language. Bar means son and Abba means father. Literally Barabbas means the son of the father. And so Barabbas is facing a a horrific penalty for the things that he has done. Uh, His name literally means the son of the father. He has no hope, but the son of God steps into his place, pays the price, and because of that, Barabbas, son of the father, can now go free. It's a picture of our salvation. He paid the price so that we, as Barabbas, sons of the father, daughters of the father, don't have to. So we ended there last time, but I'm going to read verse 26, and it says, then he, as the story continues, he released Barabbas, son of the father, for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So as Jesus is turned over to crucifixion, this is where our story is going to pick up. I want you to highlight a couple of things as we go. You'll notice on the top of your outline, I put some verses. We're studying in Matthew 27 today, but I put some passages from Isaiah and from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. It will describe the crucifixion from the position of somebody being on the cross looking down and describing what's going on around him. Isaiah will also describe what's going on from the the picture of the cross. So you want to highlight that. So there on your outline, Psalm 22, 1, just to show you what I mean, will begin by this phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to anybody? So that's going to be a picture from the cross, and we'll see as we go. Now, also to let you know, I'm going to refer to some of these passages, but, but I'm a Christian today not because I grew up in the church, which I did. I have a wonderful church experience. I'm a Christian today because I became convinced that only God, a thousand, two thousand, five hundred years before events happen, could say, this is what's going to happen with incredible precision, and then it happens just as God said. Christianity is the only faith that is based upon predictive prophecy. That is, God said this is what's going to happen, and it happened 100%. Nobody else could do that but God. So we'll highlight some of that. Also today as we talk about the cross, it's very important there in your outline, our English word excruciating, excruciating comes from the Latin excruciatus, which means out of the cross. Uh, cruciatus is a, is a term for torture, torment. Uh, the root of that word is crux, which is cross. So our English word excruciating means from out of the cross. That's where we get that. That will be very important because the crucifixion was designed to be the most painful, most humiliating form of death ever imagined, ever developed. It's going to be beyond our Christian comprehension, and I'll show you why in a few minutes. But in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, 
or I want you to read later on uh, there at the top of your outline, but there in Isaiah it says, there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So what happens to Jesus as he encounters the cross is going to be beyond what we can actually fathom. We'll talk about that as we go. Gospel writers do not elaborate on everything that took place in the crucifixion. I'll just give some highlights just for context, but I'm not going to over-dramatize the event. I'll just give you some, some points. As our story picks up there in verse 26, Jesus has received several beatings. It's been going on all night, and it's early in the morning. Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate, the Roman governor, Uh, hands Jesus over for crucifixion. Verse 26, it says, then he released Barabbas for them and having Jesus scourged, some of your Bibles might say flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, just without going into too much detail, this event would take place. Uh, the, the, The whip that they would use would have metal, it would have bones, and the bones would be in the form of hooks and things like that, so that when they hit the idea is it would sink into the flesh, it would pull literally the flesh out so that you would actually see the actual bones, not, not because you'd see them because they're, they're now sticking out and many times the intestines would fall out and it would not be uncommon to have somebody die just in this scourging, this flogging. And uh, so just keep, keep that in mind. So verse 27, it says, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. There were several hundred of these uh, soldiers around him. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Now, if you have the NIV translation, it will say again and again, which is truer to what's really taking place. The scarlet robe that they put on him probably belonged to one of the soldiers. And uh, they take the crown of thorns, they, they put that on, uh, crown of thorns, they put that on his head, and they literally beat that in so that those are going into his skull. Always keep in mind that Jesus has been receiving multiple beatings through the night, multiple whippings. We hold that Jesus is God. When Jesus undergoes this, you only have so much blood and then you're dead. Uh, Jesus doesn't die. But anybody else would have been dead by this point because you only have so much blood. This does not kill Jesus. And this is going to be important for our study. Also, it's important to know that when they take Jesus into the praetorium, that there would be no disciples, no believers in there. It would only be Roman soldiers. So the only way that we would know that this took place uh, would be because some of those Roman soldiers get saved later on and they tell their story and they, they re, re, relate that. Verse 31, after they had mocked him, they, put, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. The condemned would always take the cross beam and would have to carry that to the place of crucifixion. 
uh, Jesus at this point is very weakened because of everything that's taken place, the beatings, the floggings, and, and all that. No, nothing to drink or anything like that. So he's now beginning to buckle under the weight of that crossbeam. So the Romans enlist a man called Simon. Uh, he would actually be from Libya and uh, to enlist him to carry the, the, the crossbeam to the cross. When they enlisted you to do that, you couldn't say no. It was, you, you did that. Verse 33, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, place of the skull. There on your outline, just for insight, skull in Greek is cranian, just means a skull. Um, but the Bible was written um, in, in, in Greek in, as far as the New Testament, but was in Latin for over a thousand years. The Latin word for skull or place of the skull here, there in your outline, is pronounced Calvary. Does everybody see that? And so the reason that's so important, when you go to a church, and that church will be called Calvary Chapel, Calvary Church, Calvary Assembly, Calvary Fellowship, what they're saying is we are pointing back to the place of the cross as, as central to everything that we believe. But that's where that word comes from, to, in, in the Latin, from the Latin's Calvary. Verse 34. Now, it's, the Romans are doing this at this point. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. Now, I want you to underline the word gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. I took the definition of gall off of your outline because I ran out of space. But gall means uh, bile. It means poison. It's something that's bitter. What is taking place here is the Romans put him on the cross. Uh, You can tell that he's famished at this point. They take a cup of wine, sour wine, and they put gall in it. Gall was something that would make it much more bitter. It's kind of like if you're thirsty and somebody hands you a glass of apple cider vinegar, but you don't think it's apple cider vinegar, but when you take, taste it, it's just blah, you, you can't take it. This was not to give him refreshment. This was to add to the torture, and that's what the gall would do. Now, there will be some others at other times who will bring him something, but this was to add to the torture. Verse 35, it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. Um, when, when they would crucify, they would take the legs, cross, or the feet, cross them like this and put one nail in between. They would bend the legs a little bit, and over time, as your hands uh, would, would, you'd hang, you'd, it'd be very difficult to breathe. So the only way that you could get a full breath of air is you'd have to push up on your legs on that one nail, uh, which would, you can imagine what that would do. That, that's why it's excruciating is the idea. Also, one of the things that we miss is that they had discovered if you put the nail right there in the wrist, you know, when you see a crucifix, Jesus is always like this. The truth of the matter is when that happens, it cuts a nerve in such a way that it sends pain like lightning up the arm, and it causes your hands to contort like a claw. So his hands wouldn't be out like this. His hands would be like this the, the entire time. And so when that happens, um, and, and the part that I would want to say at, at that place is this is going on. I thought about skipping this, but I think it's important. It's as they do this, this is the place where Luke tells us there on your outline, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. 
growing up, I always dealt with the feelings like I was not good enough for God. I have this unrealistic expectation of what it means to be spiritual or good or whatever. And so when I wouldn't make my standard, I would feel like God was up there going, you're such a loser. You know, you're never going to make it. You know? And I'd always feel like God was mad at me. Am I the only one who's ever felt like that? Is there another person? Nobody in this auditorium? There's one person. Thank you. And another. Thank you. And the rest of you are lying. So, so I would feel that way. But when, if you ever feel that way, I, I want you to always come back to this verse because they are intentionally trying to harm Jesus as much as they possibly can. And his response to them is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So when you and I, as we're trying to live this out, and sometimes we don't get it completely right, but we're really trying, uh, just know that that voice that says, I'm, God's mad at you, or you know, whatever that voice would be, just know that that doesn't come from Jesus. If he's forgiving them, let me tell you, he's totally forgiving you. So he's not mad at you. So always go back to that. Well, verse 35, again, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. A thousand years before Jesus was even born, in Psalm 22, which I want you to read later, it said this, my strength has dried up like a sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth which is why they tried to torture him with the gall because they knew he couldn't take it and just add to the torture. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced, and underline that, my hands and feet. I count all my bones. When it says that they pierced his hands and feet, this was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. Crucifixion will not be invented for another 700 years. So it describes something that hasn't even been invented yet. He says, I can count all my bones. That doesn't mean that Jesus hit 3% body fat over the night. What it means is what took place, you could actually see the bones is what's taking place. Remember, he was disfigured beyond human comprehension. Uh, They divide my garments. You want to underline that. Among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. So so the part that, that we miss is that, and again, crucifixion is beyond what we can actually comprehend because when they crucified somebody, they crucified them completely without any clothing whatsoever. So if you come from a background that has crucifixes, you'll always see that Jesus is on the cross. He looks relatively clean, and he always has a loincloth on. Uh, it misses it in two, two ways. First of all, the Bible says he would be disfigured beyond human comprehension. And, and uh, so, so keep that in mind. The other thing is uh, it, it always has Jesus clothed. That's not how they crucified. Remember that crucifixion was designed to be the most painful, most humiliating form of death ever invented. So uh, it's, it's beyond our ability to even fathom. Verse 36 And sitting down, they began to watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, "Jesus, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So the Romans are watching to make sure that none of his followers come and help. But also, uh, when it says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, John will tell us that they write that in three languages. And that's a whole other story. Verse 38. 
At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Now underline verse 43, you notice it says, he trusts in God, let God rescue him. You notice the font changes, we'll talk about that. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him, for he said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words, with the same words. So uh, as this takes place, Luke tells us that at a certain point, as this is going on, that one of the robbers has a change of heart. And uh, it goes like this there in your outline. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is a picture of what it means to enter into salvation. It had nothing to do with this man's religious affiliation. It had nothing to do with his good works, his good deeds, the life that he led. It had everything to do with recognizing who Jesus is. Jesus has a kingdom. He is the king of that kingdom and saying, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is no better prayer of salvation than this one right here. And Jesus responds and says, today, today you will be with me. And uh, so keep, keep that in mind. Verse 43, again, he says, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. A thousand years before Jesus was born, Psalm 22 was written with the view of somebody on the cross looking down around at what's going on around him. And it says, all who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. It was all laid out a thousand years before. Well, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Jesus will be crucified at 9 a.m. He will be on the cross till 12 noon, which is the sixth hour in their, in their thinking. And then from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, which is till three o'clock, there will be a darkness that goes over the whole land. And this will be where the sin of the world literally comes upon Jesus at this point. Some will say this was nothing more than a lunar eclipse. Nothing could be further from the truth. Passover always takes place according to a lunar schedule. It always takes place on a full moon. So on a full moon at night, you can't have a lunar eclipse in the daytime. So this is something that's happening supernatural. As we would say, the sin of the world is coming upon Jesus at this point. As he takes on that sin, that as he pays for that, Paul would say it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll remember 
That's the first line of Psalm 22. You want to read that later on. Psalm 22 describes the cross from the picture of looking down around what's taking place. Now the difference is Psalm 22 will, will have a very victorious ending. Our story is going to have a very victorious ending too, but just not in this chapter. So keep, keep that in mind as you go. So um, verse 46, okay, so verse 46, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we see that. Verse 47, some of those who were standing there when they heard it, they began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Now keep in mind, when Jesus says, Eli, Eli, he's not speaking to the crowd like this. He's, he's speaking to his heavenly father. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of noise. There would be the anguish of the two guys who are next to him. So they hear Eli. Uh, they don't hear anything else. They don't hear the rest of it. They only hear part of, of the word. And so they think that he's crying out for Elisha. They, they, they miss it. Verse 47, some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of the men ran, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest, said to, the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come. Uh, verse, um, what verse am I at? Verse 40, okay, verse 49. Okay, so uh, the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will will come and save him. So this picture around the cross, again, this was all written about in Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus would even be born. And Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he describes what's taking place. And he says it like this, and I put it on your outline. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, And like one from whom, and I've underlined, men hide their face, he was despised. He was so disfigured that you'd want to turn your face away. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, and yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was, and I've underlined, pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. The punishment that he took sets us free. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him says he was pierced. Once again, hundreds of years before crucifixion is invented. And Jesus in this takes our punishment on himself so that we, like Barabbas, the son of the father, can go free. In the story, either we allow him to pay that price for us or that price then awaits us as we reject that. And so we'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 50, it says, um, then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yields his spirit. John's gospel tells us what Jesus cries out 
with a loud voice there in your outline. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When it says it is finished, there's two ways to translate that. And the other way is, uh, the, the word there in the original is tetelestai. It can be translated as it is finished or paid in full which is uh, many Bible scholars prefer that translation because at the point where it's paid in full, Jesus dismisses his spirit. He gives up his spirit. It's important to know uh, that as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. And because he's God, he, uh, you can't kill him. We would look on any mortal man and we'd say, Jesus, you should have been dead a long time ago based upon what took place. But you can't kill God. The only way that that's going to happen is that Jesus has to intentionally dismiss his spirit. And so he does that. Now it's also important to understand that Jesus has to dismiss his spirit when the price is paid in full. That's uh, also for the benefit of the two guys who are next to him. See, In the Bible, nobody can ever die in God's presence. Nobody ever dies in Jesus' presence. Everywhere he goes, if somebody dies, or you know, they come back to life is is the idea. So Jesus dies so that the other two guys would be able to die. And and so John would tell it like this. He dismisses the spirit. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Jesus was already dead. I grew up in a tradition that would say, they'd be very passionate about this, and they'd say, you know what killed Jesus? Jesus died of a broken heart. Did anybody ever hear something like that? You guys went to the wrong church growing up. But they'd always say Jesus died of a a broken heart, which is completely untrue. Jesus dismissed his spirit. He was already dead before he uh, was stabbed in the side. And so I'm not going to bring that up in the third service because apparently uh, you guys didn't hear that growing up. I'm going to stop right there in the story just because of time. But um, what I I do want to say in, in the time that we have is that the whole message of the Bible and that which is Christian, that which is unchristian, that which God would call truth and error error for those who, who reject, is that God came to the earth as a man because God could not bear to see you and I for all eternity pay that horrific penalty. And so God came to the earth to pay that price and there was no other way. Just like Barabbas, there was no other option, there was no other way except that the Son of God stepped into his place and in paying that price, Barabbas, the son of the father, got to go free. There were two next to Jesus. One cursed, uh, we would say esteemed him not. Claimed to be the Son of God, oh well, big deal, doesn't mean anything to me. Esteemed him not. Many fall into that place. But one recognized his situation. He recognized that his hope was no longer in this earth, in this life. But he recognized who Jesus was, that he was not just a king, but the king. And his question, his request to Jesus 
was remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's all it took for Jesus, Jesus to say, today, today, you will be with me. As we close in prayer, there's a couple of things I'd ask you to evaluate because, guys, these are eternal, eternal decisions. One, the whole message of the Bible, God came to the earth as a man. God stepped into the place of Barabbas, the son of the father, and paid the price. Christians believe that there is only one way. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There are no verses that talk about other ways. It's Jesus or it's not Jesus. To believe that there's another way is not Christianity. That's universalism. That is not Christianity. And that Jesus cannot save you. And this is an eternal decision. Every one of us, as it said, has gone astray. We've all done some things. But he, on our behalf, stepped in and he paid the price. And he invites us to receive that. And as we receive that, he allows us to go free as Barabbas, son of the father. Or as the thief on the cross who said, remember me. It's very simple. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The gospel that holds that Jesus is a prophet or a great teacher is not the gospel. The gospel that says, yeah, it's Jesus for us, but it's you know, something else for somebody else is not the gospel. It's an entirely different religion. Jesus would say, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to death and destruction, and many will enter by that. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who will find it. You and I live in a church age where about 50% of the people who go to church each and every week believe that the gate is a little bit more narrow than Jesus and Jesus alone. That gospel, that gospel cannot save you. And if you don't embrace the gospel of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, the message of the Bible, Jesus who is God, and you embrace the other one, all that awaits is the punishment that he wanted to take on our behalf. And the other lie that many who attend church each and every week believe is that there's not really that punishment for those of us who reject. So people who profess to believe believe in Jesus don't always believe that he's God. They don't always believe that he's the only way. And they don't believe that there is hell to pay. But they think that they are Christian when they have denied everything that is central to everything that Jesus taught and Jesus and Christians have believed for 2,000 years. I sound emphatic because I don't want you to show up there in eternity with the wrong gospel, following the wrong Jesus. And so as I close in prayer today, you have the opportunity. Jesus, I I want you. You're God. God came to the earth. You're the only way. You stepped into my place. As you stepped in my place, you paid the price for my sin. I become Barabbas, the son of the father, and I go free, not because I'm good, but because of what you did 
on my behalf. And it's as simple as saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, but don't, 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 don't miss this gospel. Make sense? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for just laying it out. And Lord, you know, we've, many of us have been in church our whole lives and we've wrestled and there's so many voices and get that. But Lord, today we ask you to reveal yourself, your, the truth of who you are and, and the lie of believing that that narrow gate's a little wider than what you taught or when you said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father uh, the lie that says, yeah, there's another way. So we come to you today and we reject all of that. And we say, I believe that God came to the earth as a man. You stepped into my place. You paid the price for my sin. And because you paid the price, I accept that. And then I, Barabbas, son of the father, I now go free. It's a simple, and we say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so we invite you to step in and to save us. And we invite you then as you step in and you save us and your Holy Spirit enters into us to begin to move and and, and grow us and develop us and make us into who it is that you want us to be. That's you today after the service. There's going to be some prayer partners standing by in the front. They would love to pray with you. And, and it, let us know today that you've made that decision if, if, if by only marking it on your connection card. But don't miss this today. Father, I thank you for this congregation, their love for you, the things of you, the love of your word. And I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here today.